Welcome back to Reply, guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. What a week for Reply, guys, Julia. Oh, I should oh, say that I'm boy. Kate Willett. Yeah, you're Kate Willett. I'm Julia Clare. Uh, we're, we still are after all this. Uh. Um, <laughs> did you, did you, uh, I was, I had like a couple contenders, strong contenders for Reply Guy of the Week. It was going to be Piers Morgan um of course because he fucking sucks but then now i kind of want to change my reply guy of the week to brooklyn dad defiant because we just found out that he is actually like a paid operative for the democratic party and he got like sixty thousand dollars to make tweets like about fucking phoebe bridgers and shit i don't know it's really stupid yeah he uh yeah he is one of the um the minor characters on on twitter who i i try my best to ignore uh but yeah there have been a lot of good contenders for reply guy of the week i also made a i made the mistake of uh you know tweeting the truth about andrew yang uh and anytime i tweet about andrew yang Yang? which is just, just that he's like you know he's a corporate technocrat that's it's very yeah it's exactly. simple i don't it's like not, not not anything that you can't learn from a cursory google of him uh but anytime i tweet about andrew yang uh his supporters just come out on mass and basically what i said in this tweet was that like i've never seen a politician whose supporters are so misinformed about what their own candidate believes. Like just there's so much dissonance between those two things. Uh, and again, it's like he's come, it's like these are his own expressed policies. These are his own views that he's saying himself. And people are like, no, that's not what he believes. <laughs> so yeah. no, uh, I totally, anyways, I just, I, summarily decided to not look at the replies uh after after the first maybe uh 30 or so to my 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 tweet about andrew yang did i ever tell you the story about when i was canvassing in Keene, new hampshire and we tried to convert members of the yang gang to vote for bernie you didn't i don't think well, you did. i'll tell it to yeah, you now please do okay so it was like last it was last year you know right before the new hampshire primary and i was canvassing with a friend you know i don't know i don't know i'm not sure how to refer to this friend anymore but um anyway uh we like knocked on the door of this kind of like it wasn't a dorm but it was like a student house and we talked to this guy you know uh, these two male roommates that were like in the uh yang gang 
And uh, Yang was like not, he wasn't a viable contender, you know? So we, it, we, when they were like, oh, we like UBI, we're like, oh, if you like UBI, like you may enjoy, you know, the policies of Bernie Sanders or whatever. They seem really interested. And then they close the door. And then like the minute that uh, they close the door, I just heard them say, I wish that lady would shut the fuck up. And I wanted to punch that guy in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I had to convince so many people not to vote for Andrew Yang uh, in the Democratic well, primary, and it's going to happen over yeah, again with, with with the mayor so, of New York. Yeah, the reason why I yeah. tweeted about him was that he that there was a new poll saying that he is ahead in the current uh, mayoral race, uh, and I just I want to know what people are seeing about him that the other than the fact that because he ran for president he has the highest name recognition of the group which i think is the case i think that's you know uh, i'm just really uh it it disheartens me to see someone who thinks that like one of the main problems in New York is that there isn't enough corporate business <laughs> like and and yeah, also no, it's and also ridiculous. the person in the democratic primary in the in the presidential primary who was the most nakedly pro charter school i don't i'm sorry fuck off like i just don't and you know some people were saying like oh, you're acting like that's his policy now i'm like it was a year and a half ago how how much do you think he's changed since then oh my god yeah no i, I don't know why this made me think of what did this made me this made me think for some reason and i have not yet uh, found the mental connection here and i was thinking about oh here it was okay glenn greenwald going oh my this god week on twitter <laughs> Yeah, no, I understand. So going off, he goes strong contender for reply of the week, really every week. But he was going off about the Taylor Lorenz, who is a journalist for The New York Times, who I think reports a lot on like TikTok and social media. Um, and she was tweeting about the harassment that she's experienced over the next over the past year and just like how it's ruined her life, which I totally understand because I have been harassed a lot on the Internet myself. And, you know, if not, it hasn't ruined my life, but it, it certainly has uh, made my life harder. And I can only imagine Taylor Lorenz gets, you know, a billion times more because she's, you know, has a huge, huge, huge platform. So Glenn Greenwald was like you know he's mad at her for talking about her online harassment and you know play, like playing the victim card whatever i think is what he said or calling like framing herself as a victim or whatever but you, that just struck me as so dumb because glenn greenwald was one of the main people who went to bat for aaron coleman who if you remember was that like a little teen rapist who was running in kansas and was like oh you know this was a, a while ago which like like aaron coleman was like still yeah. a teen and like had uh, so i don't know it's just like i feel like one of the dumbest internet phenomenons is the super anti-cancel culture dudes who are like also very dismissive of it whenever women experience harassment but uh, like a lot of the stuff that they're calling canceling or whatever is just people 
tweeting shit about people who yeah. suck like you know people tweeting oh like don't vote for aaron coleman or whatever or like he you know he sucks and it's like why is it canceling if you like criticize someone on the internet but if you tweet at like a female reporter that you want her to like die and shit that's not canceling yeah. like what could be a what could be a more cancel than like a, a, a murder threat or something you know so it's just yeah really actually stupid, uh brunig was was like yeah i fully had people say like he she was like there, there was this one guy who said <laughs> with his full name in his twitter uh in his twitter name that he wanted to murder my kids and nothing ever happened about that <laughs> like, uh, yeah. yeah i mean uh the internet is a terrible place for all of us uh but the the constant dismissal of the the harassment that women uh endure online is really something and especially like glenn greenwald Ah, uh, I just, uh, I don't know how someone who's, I, I don't know how someone whose life is so good as his is, is so full of uh, bile and vitriol towards others. Yeah, he's, I don't know, it's just, it's like internet brain, right? Like, I think that, I mean, he's been through some shit with you know he he was he was right about some things like especially related to like that russiagate was being overblown and i feel like the same sure, thing sure. No, happened I just, I just, to to him yeah and, i just i know I, I hear just mean, i hear you. i just mean that he yeah. has like a beautiful family and a dog rescue and like he's yeah, a good no, life. like he's he's way too online <laughs> yeah no if i if my life is ever that full and wonderful i will um log off i know you know like, you, uh -oh. you gotta get to a point where you're so happy that you leave twitter forever <laughs> and he, yeah, sh he should I, be there is what i'm saying yeah i i'm off for two days like every time i fuck you know <laughs> like <laughs> yeah if i Honey, if i experience much. like a moment of passing joy i'm off for the rest of the day um yeah. but all right. I I think that we we should we should talk about some of the stories stories of the week. Um, Kate, Kate yeah. you go you go first. Okay, so uh, th this is a pretty. I feel like this is like a, an optimistic week um, compared to most weeks. So uh, this is a story from Ryan Grimm and Kayla Lacey uh, in The Intercept. Um, so basically a coalition of progressive candidates backed by the local chapter of the DSA completely overtook the leadership of the Nevada Democratic Party. And th they won all five leadership positions. And then uh the establishment like they all uh fucking quit every other employee from like the the democratic party uh quit after this um all the consultants uh they're just they're out you know um which is like it's kind of a sweet revenge right because nevada in 2016 was obviously like such a contentious mm -hmm. place um with like a you know th just the the democratic primary there 
Um, and uh, I and don't then know, her boy like, won, and then her leftists, boy won last year. Yeah, in 2020, yeah, and um, leftists have really been organizing there, you know, for the past like five years, and it, it's really, really starting to pay off. Um, it's also pretty funny because, you know, when it comes to like uh, them wanting us to vote for their candidate, it's always like, oh, we're all on the same side, you know. But then it's like, we're, clearly, we're not. Like, if you know, socialists win or leftists, progressives. I'm not sure how every single person uh, refers to themselves or what their exact politics is, but. Um, you know, like if, if they win and then all the centrists are like fucking out. Um, Nevada has been uh, known as the Reed machine because it was still guided by Senate majority, former Senate Harry majority Reed. leader Harry Reid. Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, the Sanders campaign really focused heavily on organizing uh, the young Latino vote, um, union members, um and uh, the DSA was really doing a lot of organizing there. Um, and uh, yeah, they just, they really, you know, have uh, made a ton of of progress. Um, and, you know, in a world of uh, seemingly endless despair, this is really good and really funny yeah. news. So uh, the good news just keeps on coming, as Kate said. Pretty optimistic week. Um, we we've talked about this this on the show before about the uh, the the D Triple C's blacklist. Basically, um, it was a ban on um, political consultants who work with candidates uh, challenging sitting Democratic incumbents and in primaries. Um, and, uh, including like, I think including like staff and like yes. PR people and just like any, so, anybody. So who this, works I mean, and it's pretty transparent that this came on the heels of it's, it's this, this rule quote unquote had only been in place for two years and it very clearly kind of came on the heels of, uh, of wins like AOC's. Um, but it has, uh, you know, there is a, a brand new chair of the DCCC, uh, Rep. Sean Patrick Maloney. What a gorgeous Irish name. Um, and yeah. uh, he is the newly installed chair of the DCCC. And he officially... And, and a leprechaun, a leprechaun. Uh, He is the, <laughs> the official mascot of Lucky Charms. And he uh, officially reversed the policy on Tuesday morning he actually campaigned on reversing the policy as well. Um, so that is uh, some good news. We can, I, I think that it's, you know, and, and you and I had both talked about this before. It's ultimately really just poor strategy to discourage a new generation of, uh, of people from uh, in your party f from running for office. Um, even if they're challenging, like, I mean, who is like, say what you will about AOC, but like, you, you could argue like, besides Bernie Sanders, who has energized the base more than her and the, the other members of the squad, all of whom, all of whom Nobody. I think were, uh, income challenge incumbent challengers. Well, I guess it depends what you mean by the base, because I mean, the definitely base of the party. they have 
energized. Yeah, I mean, it just depends, right? Because I feel like there's, you know, they've energized a lot of young people. Um, but I mean, like when it comes to kind of the uh, fucking, you know, democratic, like sort of like centrist, like the people who really like follow politics, like yeah, uh, there's there's still a lot of support for fucking Joe and Kamala. And, you know, well, I just I, I guess I just mean that, like, I, I mean, it should like even though that's true and that is that is true um, in terms of policy. Uh, the yeah. the base is definitely to the left of your 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 Joes oh, and your sure. your Kamalas, um, yeah. And I I think honestly I think that we've I I just feel like every day we are seeing that the left is winning, um, in uh, our you know our dogged hearts and minds campaign. Uh, yeah. But absolutely. one more thing that I wanted to say another. Uh, another piece of good news, um, you know, for all of you antitrust heads out there, uh, there have been <laughs> two two big ones, uh, two big appointments um, uh, that have come this week. Uh, one was Tim Wu, who is a Columbia law professor who he's the person who t- coined the term net neutrality, is joining the Biden administration and. Uh, uh, on the technology and competition policy team at the National Economic Council, the NEC, um, which is pretty huge. He, I mean, people, some some people are reporting that he is a tech critic. So that's what people are calling him. But Zephyr Teachout, who is uh, uh, the author of Break Em Up, she's a huge antitrust uh, thought leader, uh, was saying, you know, anyone calling him a, a tech critic is... Or he uh, is kind of missing the point. He's a he's an anti-monopolist. Um, he's written several books uh, about that. And the other big nomination in antitrust news uh, has been Lena Khan, who is another Columbia law professor and antitrust scholar. Uh, and she is going to be nominated uh, for a seat on the Federal Trade Commission, um, which, again, is huge. This is this is just a big I, I I hope and I I think that this signals like a pretty big wind change in terms of um, how we think about antitrust law like basically the the issue is not that we don't have antitrust laws they are we do have them and they are just not enforced and to have kind of two leaders in uh, antitrust law, um, have such prominent positions uh, in the Biden administration gives me a lot of a lot of optimism, and I think that it's I, you know, I'm shocked at any time the Biden administration makes a good a good call, good choice. So uh, I'm really pleased with this. Uh, this is it's huge. It's um, again, these are not just people who are quote unquote critical of the tech industry. These are these are two giants of uh, antitrust uh, legislation. You kind of wonder how they got in the door, you know? I don't care. Like, God bless. <laughs> but, Whatever uh, they did it. Good. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. seems like they were, it seems like um, that's why they were chosen. Like, that's what's so shocking to me is that these, these are two people who have built their careers 
on examining corporate monopolies and advocating for antitrust enforcement. So, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled. I'm very pleased. You want to tell us a little bit about the interview this week? I would week? love to. Um, so I, I had a great interview with, uh, with Connor Lewis, who is the, uh, the editor of Strike Wave, which is an online publication, uh, that's really great. That's kind of just, uh, uh, your one-stop shop for labor news. Um, and we talked about a lot of different things. We talked about, um, of course we talked about Amazon. You can't talk about labor without talking Amazon and what's going on in Bessemer, um, the the efficacy of boycotts, the the current Amazon boycott. We talked about um, <laughs> rising Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh, uh, former former yeah. mayor of Boston. Um, well, I guess current mayor of Boston technically still. Um, but yeah, it was a great conversation. Connor's super smart, and he answered a lot of questions that I had. Um, and I, th- I think you, I think all, all of our listeners will be, uh, will be pretty interested in this. I know I was. Um, and yeah, I really, I really appreciate him, uh, him coming on the show and sharing his, his labor, his labor knowledge with us. That's awesome. Well, I'm really excited to hear the interview myself and uh, for folks who may not have uh, been listening lately, I have a new audiobook out on Audible called Dirtbag Anthropology. So please listen to it uh, and rate and review it because I, I really liked making it. It was fun. Um, all right. So uh, we will be back uh, on our Patreon later this week and next Wednesday with a new main feed episode. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I'm very excited today uh, to be speaking with Connor Lewis, who is the editor of the online publication Strike Wave. Uh, Connor, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. (laughs) So, you know, it's been, uh, as we've said on the show many times, Unions are having a moment. Uh, I think uh, labor is is finally getting uh, a much needed upswing after kind of decades of um, kind of neoliberal slander against uh, organized labor. Um, and there's just been a lot of. I feel like there's maybe it's just the, the circles that I run in or the the feed that I see every day on Twitter, but I do think that. Um, there has been a resurgence in interest in uh, organizing one's workplace. Um, have you have you noticed that phenomenon as well? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that, I mean, obviously, smash the royal family and all of that. But mm-hmm. I mean, having the having a member of the royal family say on Oprah that unions are good actually uh, certainly can't hurt. Um, and that is of course a reference to mm-hmm. Meghan Markle uh, who, you know, uh, a former screen actor skilled queen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take the shout out. I'm no fan of the royal family, but you know, <laughs> I'll take the shout out. Um, well, I mean, in fairness, it sounds like she isn't either. So yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah it's in fairness. Yeah, that, that's you know, I do love I do love class traders. So you know, mm -hmm. if if Harry's going to come to the um, come to the light side, welcome. Let's do it. Um, yeah, you know, I I think that. I definitely see a lot of interest in discussion about unions. I think that there's, you know, I, especially among anyone who kind of entered the job market, like around the economic um, economic crash, you know, pretty much every experience has been um, work sucks. It's not getting any better. Uh, it sucks more in a lot of cases than it sucked for parents that had more stable employment or, you know, grandparents that had union jobs. And I think that a lot of people are pretty, you know, clear that unions are a solution for the fact that work sucks and we can make it better. And obviously, I think the experience of the recovering, quote unquote, recovering from the Great Recession has been that, you know, um, businesses aren't exactly going to trickle down doesn't trickle down. So you, you don't know. say you don't say big if true. Can't can't believe it. Can't believe that. Uh, the trickle down, which was disproved by Reagan's own administration in the 80s, uh, still doesn't work. Uh <laughs> you know, if, uh, if people keep saying that, um, keep saying that and delude themselves and thinking it will work, but it might work for us. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's so we true. just got to keep trying it till it does. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I, I see a lot of interest um, in unions. I think that you can see a lot of sectors of the economy where, um, or the workforce where you can see like just incredible union growth, um, just like the nonprofit sector. It's like every single week, there's a new nonprofit that's organizing. Um, and especially like newsrooms, um, I, I saw, I can't remember the exact number, but uh, the News Guild hasn't lost a newsroom election in over a decade. Mm. And they organized, like they've organized in the past couple of years, like over 40 newsrooms. And like six years ago, even the idea of newsroom uh, unions was kind of becoming a thing that was restricted to a couple of legacy newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, and now you've got like the Tidewater Guild in kind of these small kind of local newspapers and people are turning to unions to protect newsrooms from these predatory hedge funds. So, you know, I, I think that just if you look at the entirety of the workforce and you look at the fact that pretty much everything is a hellscape, um, mm -hmm. nobody's coming to save us. And I think that people are realizing that actually, if we unionize, uh, we can actually save ourselves. Yeah, it's the old, you know, there is power in a union. Um, and, and I think that one of the uh, the threads that run through the different uh, sectors that you talked about were kind of these very sudden massive layoffs uh, that have have happened in a lot of those industries, not just um, during and following the financial crisis. Um, and, you know, particularly in media, we've seen many publications be swallowed up by private equity firms and then uh, kind of sold for parts. Uh, mm -hmm. It's happened over and over and over again to just today, 47 uh, employees from Huffington Post were laid off. Um, and do they have a union? I think they do. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, so, I mean, 
No, I don't it, it know. Can't, it can't promote. Honest. It can prevent yeah. all layoffs, certainly. Right. But it's. Uh, I think the 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 com again the common thread between uh, all of these different experiences was just seeing that workers recognizing that they had so little bargaining power um, and so little leverage in their own workplaces. Yeah, and you know I think connecting that to kind of the the recent strike wave among education workers and you know this past year um, among a lot of healthcare workers especially is it's also professions where they have this kind of like big romantic kind of love your job kind of ethos like mm-hmm. nonprofits are mission driven you've got to accept shit wages because you know you're there for the mission and journalism you've got this kind of uh, all the king's men kind of romantic kind of image that and of course it doesn't matter that you get paid crap because you're supposed to be doing it for the story right. um and say i mean that's been the story of you know healthcare and education forever and i think that you're kind of getting a wave of workers that are looking at that and saying yeah no we're gonna pass like yeah. i think that hey, this is actually a friend of mine sarah jaffe um just released a book on this it's speaks to it a lot better than I can, but uh, it's called uh, Work Won't Love You Back. But this idea that- Great, great know, title. I know, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, but you know, this idea that loving your job is actually will feed you is uh, bullshit. I mean, aside from, or the fact that, you know, putting yourself into your job for ridiculously low compensation is somehow going to, you know, keep you happy. Um, and perhaps, think, yeah, yeah, perhaps no profession uh, knows that better than teachers. I think they are the ones who have been kind of the most exploited in that way. Like, oh, shouldn't you just love your job? Shouldn't you be doing it for the kids? Um, yeah. And I think that that is, that's why it's been so powerful that we've had um, massive, in the past five years, some of the biggest uh, teacher strikes have come out of red states. Um, and that's really been, I, I think that that actually has been a, a catalyst for a big resurgence in labor, that it's becoming, uh, you know, uh, the, a lot of centrists talk about like uh, compromise and like meeting in the middle and things like that. That is actually a place, unions are, labor organizing is a place where people from different political ideologies can come together um, Mm -hmm. against a common enemy being the boss. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I think that the really powerful thing about the education strikes, and I I actually just for one day, but I I was on the picket line in Wheeling um, the first day that they wildcatted. And, you know, I think the really powerful thing in seeing those is it's not where you would expect I mean, I think that for people paying more attention, West Virginia is not that surprising of a place. But then you throw in Oklahoma and Arizona. These are not places that are labor strongholds. Right. And I think that the fact that they did it and the fact that they won shows, sends a powerful message to a lot of other workers that, look, this is possible. And also the fact that the public supported them. Mm -hmm. Like, as a person that works with uh, educators, you know, I think that the most shocking thing of all of it for them was that the public actually supported them. Yes. Like, 
that was just wild. That, that, that is really, that really speaks to kind of what I'm getting to is that not only, um, uh, you know, have there been these great labor victories, but also public opinion on labor has, the tide has pretty definitively turned. I think certainly from when I grew up, you know, internalizing a lot of pretty strong anti-union messaging, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of kind of fallacious rhetoric about, um, you know, the, the dangers of, of unions and their, uh, you know, very, uh, again, kind of painting all unions in a, in a Jimmy Hoffa light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think that on the other end of it, you know, I, I grew up in a more union friendly uh, household. My, my grandfather was a News Guild uh, steward and, um, you know, my folks are have both been involved in unions. And uh, I think that on the other end of it, you have this kind of idea that's been peddled, especially like around 2008 when and then heading into like the um, what is it, that dumb Superman movie? Um the edu- I can't even remember the oh, name. Oh, like waiting yeah, for yeah, Superman. Yeah. yeah, heading into that, that somehow education unions are different. Other unions are okay, but education unions are bad. And I remember, like, I think I must have been like 18. I grew up in Los Angeles and, um, and there was like this series of like an expose in the LA Times about how unions protect bad teachers and how teachers are getting paid to sit in rooms and and all this kind of stuff while they're being investigated for discipline and all I basically this idea that education unions are different because they care for our kids and they should do it because they care for our kids and they shouldn't ask for a decent pay. And I mean, even, even a lot of like, uh, honestly, there are probably a fair number of private sector, even union members who have kind of like absorbed that kind of idea that Mm -hmm. the public sector is different and teachers especially are different. When you get right down to it, the reason for all of that crap is just because teachers unions are powerful. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really it. And, and, you know, you see that still today. There are definitely some, some very visible remnants of that. You still see politicians, especially right-wing politicians, um, just kind of feeling free to take a swing at, at teachers unions uh, very regularly, uh, making, uh, you know, making them the target of, of vilification, which is just especially in the context of the past year is absolutely uh, batshit to me. I don't, I mean, again, and we, and we see this now because uh, people want to send their kids back to school, but a lot of the states have not prioritized vaccinating the teachers. So the teachers are saying, well, I don't want to go back until I'm fully vaccinated. Yeah. And, you know, teachers have had to supply a lot of their own um, PPE in the past year. Um, again, we ask teachers to spend so much of their own money on just regular school supplies. And then all of the added expenses that have come on top of that in the past year. Um, yeah, it's really, uh, to be offering anything to teachers other than a raise and, a public job well done is ghoulish to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I think that the insane part is basically when you break it down, what we're asking of teachers right now to go back into schools is you should love your my kids so much that yes. you are willing to <laughs> you are willing to risk your life and your family's, you know, safety. Um and, it, was and like, just it was like those those southern politicians at the or like I think there were some like governors in the deep south last year who said that old people should be willing to die for their country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, old people are the troops in the pandemic now, apparently. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's this kind of crazy expectation that literally, I mean, I don't know of a single teacher that's paid enough for that. And, no. and, you know, the, the other part of it is aside from like you, you have these right-wing politicians, like I think, um, uh, what is it? Rand Paul has said some just ridiculous stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But increasingly, even, um, you know, supposedly progressive mayors like Lori Lightfoot's crap around Chicago teachers. I mean, it was the most gaslighting and manipulative kind of crap and putting the entire basically making them responsible for all of the failings of a society just completely unprepared to deal with a global pandemic. It's well, all on them. Yeah, and she she took up, up the mantle of her predecessor, uh, our most hated foe, Rahm Emanuel, uh, no. in, in terms of uh, vilifying the Chicago Teachers Union, who, oh my gosh. I mean, in a city like Chicago, just like here in New York, um, you know, incredibly segregated public school systems, uh, overworked, underpaid teachers, and to make them the boogeyman in some way and blame them for the failings of the system is completely disingenuous and underhanded. And yeah, Lori Lightfoot really picked up right where Rom left off in that way. Yeah, you know, I I never thought that there would be anyone that could match Rahm Emanuel, <laughs> let alone get worse. And she's trying. She, I mean, she is trying. She is going for that gold. Uh, yeah. And uh, we we hate to see it. Um, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about um, about Strike Wave. Um, of which you are, you are the editor. Um, can you, can you tell me a little bit about who you guys are and what your, uh, your staff looks like, what, what your mission is? Sure. So it's, it's kind of an unusual kind of setup. Um, it, it came together about two and a half years ago, um, mostly from a couple of union staffers and activists that, I mean, I'll be honest, Pretty much it was a DM where we were complaining about getting Politico labor roundups that were sponsored by like the Restaurant Owners Association and shit like that. <laughs> and it's like just looking at there is no good source for labor news. And there is so much happening in labor right now. And this was coming off of um, this was just a couple of months after the West Virginia um, strike. And there was so much energy and things happening. And it seemed like there was no way to actually kind of capture and show people like this is everything that's happening in labor right now. And so our mission was basically initially to just kind of, we literally just wanted to put together a like Google alert 
like news alert and pull mm -hmm. articles and put them into a newsletter. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned um, the digital kind of um, news layoffs because and, you know, how unions play, interact with that, because one of the first things that kind of put us on the trajectory toward being more of like an actual publication was um, Kim Kelly got uh, laid off at Vice and mm -hmm. we asked her to write about it for us. And we, th we were thinking about it, it's like we're not going to ask her. She literally just got laid off. Like we're going to pay her well for this. Right. And so, um, and the thing is like, she wrote this really amazing piece about how the union, even though it couldn't stop the layoffs, it made sure that they got severance, that they got healthcare, yes. you know, that they had all these things that made the transition easier. And then it wouldn't read like we read that and we were like, this is really good. Why don't we keep paying journalists good money to write about labor? It seems like an obvious thing, but like, so we basically turned it into, we want a platform that's unapologetically pro-labor. We're not, and I, I, when I interview people, I tell them flat out, like, this is not a fair and balanced source. Like, we are pro-labor. We stand the labor movement. That's just, and, you know, often. Well, and, you know, and, you know, in fairness to you guys, there are many, there are many sources that claim to be fair and balanced that are on that are in in truth unapologetically kind of like sympathetic to the right to work ghouls of the world. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would say probably most of them. Most of them, um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, that was kind of our goal was to put together a platform for labor reporting um, and to actually make sure that people could be. Our idea is that to grow labor journalism, and we are seeing a really cool growth of labor journalism, you actually have to pay labor journalists enough to be able to survive on. So Wild. to kind of, yeah, I know, <laughs> like people actually need rent, like, um, Who knew? and so like we've steadily kind of put everything into, you know, compensating the contributors. What that means practically is that, I mean, the editorial staff, there's, I want to say nine of us. I can never remember. There's like nine of us. Um, most of us are like union staff, union activists. We have um, other jobs and we kind of basically volunteer to do like the editorial work and to keep it going. And that means that all of the money that we fundraise goes to like paying for the website and paying contributors. So, so, I mean, that's kind of the idea. And we've actually grown pretty well, um, I would say. And, you know, we've, we've got a nice little niche, I'd say. Um, I think the coolest project that I can claim virtually zero credit for, um, we put together like a tracker of like all the OSHA complaints made during uh, the pandemic. Um, <laughs> and it is, it is a thing. Like, oh boy, um, I bet. You, can, you can go on it and see like, some of the complaints are just insane, because it actually has like a narrative description of like, what's going on? Um, and you can see like individual places on an actual map and click and it brings up the employer and all of the complaint stuff. So, I mean, that's one of the core projects we've tried to do, like less conventional stuff like that. And the benefit of that, I think, was a lot of journalists then asked us like, hey, can you give us your data? And then like a bunch of like um, broadcast news uh, you know, channels even started reporting on OSHA violations locally. So, hmm. I mean, I, I kind of see us playing like a, a smaller role, I guess, in like the, the labor media ecosphere, if you want to call it, but like 
give people a platform, pay them good wages to report on labor, and also try to help out journalists that are looking for information and you know stuff that they can use to report for their own publications or employers on labor. So that was a longer explanation than I was aiming for. But. No, that was ex- <laughs> that was actually exactly what I wanted. So thank you very much. You guys are uh, doing the, the Lord's work out there. Um, I I have like a, a question that is really uh, um, really just stems from my own curiosity um, of what you think as a, a labor reporter. Um, what is your what's your read on uh, the, the mayor of former mayor of my home city, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, Marty Walsh, uh, being, being the, the rising secretary of labor. I am looking forward to the provision of the stimulus bill that requires the department of labor to send Duncan to every picket mm-hmm. line. Thank I you. mean, that's, I, I'm really looking forward to that. Honestly, I think that having a labor leader, in the Department of Labor is, it seems like an obvious thing, but I think that there have only been... It's, well, he's the yeah. first in, he's the first in what, 50 years to... Yeah, and like all of the other ones were Republican appointees, I yeah. mean, which is crazy. Um, like it's really uncommon and it seems obvious. And, you know, I think that the building trades have a reputation for being a little bit more conservative, but Marty Walsh is definitely like, for the building trades, he's a pretty progressive guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, I might have some quibbles with like things here or there. Uh, I mean, you can, you can yet. shit on Marty. Yeah. We, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like a lot of mayors, I think that he, the way that he handled, um, the way that he handled reopening Boston schools, um, oh, he's yeah. a lot to be desired. Um, I think that, let me put it this way. I wouldn't necessarily want him as mayor of Boston, but I'm perfectly happy with him at Department of Labor. You know what? I completely agree. And the minute I heard about his nomination or his prospective nomination, I thought that seems like a better job for him than mayor of Boston. Uh, I had a lot of complaints. You know, I haven't even, I haven't lived in Boston five years, but I, I had, I had a number of complaints about him uh, as mayor, but I, you know, I am encouraged. I'm, I'm encouraged by by uh, by his nomination. Although I won't be as effusive to the Biden administration as um, many many places are saying that he's going to. This is going to be the most like pro labor administration in a hundred years even maybe that is true if so that's really fucking sad yeah i mean that's Um, more of a damning commentary on american president uh, presidencies yeah actually maybe maybe that's true maybe maybe it is going to be the most pro-labor uh and that is a a sad state of affairs yeah um but again it also shows how much the uh the overton window has shifted back towards being more um kind of uh baldly pro-labor or at least sympathetic to labor Um, uh, and it's no (laughs) surprise that that has also tracked along the same timeline as some of the uh, the greatest economic crises in in modern America Um, but 
So let's let's talk a little bit about Amazon. You can't have a conversation mm-hmm. about labor in uh, America right now without talking about Amazon. Uh, as we know, Jeff Bezos is uh, the union the union killer in chief. Uh, he has pretty explicitly prevented uh, unions from forming in most of in all basically all of his warehouses um and as a result you know we all know about the horrific conditions that a lot of his warehouse workers are subjected to um and you have a a big a big fight for for unionization happening in um bessemer uh right alabama yep bessemer alabama um that again has attracted national attention. Um, and I think all eyes are on that warehouse because um, it could be precedent setting uh, for not only just Amazon, but for you know mega corporations of their ilk. Yeah, you know, I it sounds like an exaggeration, but I, I truly believe it isn't. This is probably one of the most consequential union elections since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. I mean, realistically, when you, it, it's not just the size of the potential unit, which is about, I think, 5,800 workers, which, in a, I mean, that alone makes it a big deal. That's a, but, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah, and like union elections that size just don't happen anymore. Like they just don't. And aside from that, when you actually look at the role that Amazon plays in the economy, like it's comparable to organizing the steel industry and the auto industry in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Like this is the, like, this is like cracking Ford in like the 1930s. That's like the level of importance here or like cracking us steel. Um, Or, you know, I I mean, that's like, that's what we're talking here. So realistically, if we see this happen and they vote for a union, that completely changes, I think, the landscape for labor organizing in this country. Um, Not just with Amazon, but I think that, one, you're going to see a lot of Amazon warehouses that on some level, even if they want it, think it can't be done, Mm -hmm. even if they don't really actively say that that are suddenly going to be looking to organize. Yes. And I think you're going to see a lot of warehouses immediately become you know, organizing targets. Um, and I think that our WDSU just said that they've already had workers at other you know, distribution centers uh, reaching out to them saying like, hey, we want to organize now. Like they're seeing interests that they haven't seen. And they're not, I mean, unions have been trying to organize Amazon distribution centers for a while now. Yeah. Um, the other part I think is that just the, I think that the average American, obviously the average American knows Amazon. Amazon is omnipresent. Amazon is like the big evil overlord that like everyone is kind of aware of. You and know, the it's idea, one, of, one yeah. of the like three yeah. tech giants that we always right. talk about, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Yeah. And Amazon has deserved or not a reputation for being probably the shittiest of the three as far as like employment oh, it's, which oh it's deserved yeah, yeah. <laughs> i would say that all three of them are garbage oh but yeah i, mean, I think no, yeah, I yeah. Mean, burn burn them yeah. all down 
Yeah, I think Bezos definitely is like a special level of evil. But, you know, I think that to the average person that on some level may think that unions are nice, but it's hard to organize them or they don't win or, you know, whatever, whatever doubts they have. If you can win at Alabama or at Amazon in Alabama, Mm. you can win fucking anywhere. Right. And I think that that really is just going to be like, a seismic event if they can organize that plan. Yeah, it's it really does feel so significant for a number of reasons. One of which, as you said, is the size, um, also the the demographics of mm-hmm. the folks who work in that warehouse. Also, it's it's you know it's Alabama, it's the Deep South, it is mm-hmm. um, home of you know, it's, it's right to work country out there. Mm. Um, and it just feels like kind of all of the issues in American labor are coming to roost in one perfect storm. Uh, and I think, I, I mean, it will be, yeah, there, there is really no telling how, uh, how significant it will be if they win. Um, yeah, and in some ways, Alabama is actually like the perfect place for this kind of showdown to happen because even now, and I, I couldn't pull the stat, um, you know, I, I couldn't say the stat with absolute certainty, but they've got between about 8% to 10% union density, which is low, but for the South, that's the highest in the South. Most, yeah. A lot of them are running at 2 to 3%. Some mm-hmm. of them are like at 1%. And so it's a little bit more historically unionized than a lot of the rest of the South. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with um, like Mobile, um, you know, cities like that. But also Bessemer used to be like a major steel town, like the Bessemer process. Don't I can't explain what the hell it is, but I know it's important for making steel. Um, <laughs> so like a, historically, there's like some actual labor history there that doesn't exist through most of the rest of the South, or at least hasn't been as persistent in the rest of the South. So just all of those factors and the fact that this is like the one place where labor has a little bit of a foothold in the South really makes it like really an interesting place for this kind of showdown. Mm. I, yeah, I'm, I'm both uh, excited and terrified of, uh, of what's to come. If, uh, in so many, so many different ways. Um, I, I've been seeing a few things and I was, I was wondering if you could clear this up for me um, about the, um, an Amazon boycott and um, that I believe is, is supposedly currently going on right now. I don't, mm. I, I don't know. I don't usually use Amazon anyways, so I don't, yeah. I'm not sure. But there, I, I've been seeing some different things online about like what the actual origin of the um, the boycott Amazon um, was, and you know, some people were trying to make it clear that it's not connected to the unionization effort in Bessemer. Um, I've just been very confused by that. Do you have any insight? <laughs> yeah, uh, our RWDSU issued a statement. It was, I think, it was yesterday. It was, yeah, it was yesterday saying that, look, this isn't coming from us. Um, and, and there was immediately like a bunch of people, you know, the second you put something on Twitter, everyone's an expert and has p- opinions. Um, and 
there was immediately like a lot of people like, ah, this is a wink nudge kind of thing. Like mm. they, they, they are only saying that because they legally can't call for a boycott, but they really support it. It's like, no, they can legally boycott. Like unions, the AFL-CIO maintains a boycott list. Like Unite Here actually hires boycott organizers. God, like, I love the AFL-CIO. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's I it's love our, our, our petty... Our petty grandfathers in, in the labor movement. Yeah, I mean it's it's fantastic. Like boycotts are great. Don't get me they wrong. They are. But like, yeah. Um, but like, I think that it's important. Like knowing that RWDSU could have done this, and they're not doing it. So don't do it. Like yeah. obviously, if this was something that they wanted, they could do it. It's not that they didn't think of it. Like they absolutely have considered everything, especially in a campaign like this. Like they're not leaving any option unexamined and they chose not to do it. And so I think that you got to defer to the people that are actually, I mean, ultimately as much as like people outside really want Amazon to get organized, like for a lot of reasons and it's seismic and it has so many implications, but we also have to understand that one, that choice is up to the individual workers and we have to like be you know be aware of how these kinds of messages are going to play with them and you know we don't know their circumstances we don't know what they're you know what's going on and then the other part is ultimately like look this is about them bottom line is this is about them unionizing to protect you or to basically have a say at their own job and to build worker power in their own job and so as much as you know, there are bigger implications. And I think that, you know, especially people on the left should be concerned about that. We also have to respect that these are people that, I mean, if we're about worker autonomy and a worker, you know, worker democracy, then we got to respect the people that are actually in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And so if they're not calling for it, then don't call for it is kind of my take. Right. But luckily they are calling for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, I mean, but the thing is, like, the boycott call isn't coming from, like... Right. Right, yeah. That, yeah no, 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 so, that's it. Yeah. They're, they're call, yeah. like, yeah, they're calling yeah. for unionization. Oh, yeah, not yeah, necessarily yeah. calling for, for a boycott. Right. That's what I meant. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, I understand that people want to help. And, right. you know, boycott Amazon if you if you must. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I yeah. don't don't support them if you, if you can help it. I know that, right. you know, there are a lot of, obviously, there are a lot of, like, it's like asking people not to buy from Walmart. You're kind of, there are inherent class implications in that there. Oh yeah. um, You know, um, a lot of people who are disabled rely on Amazon for, uh, for different things uh, in terms of like ease of, of use of get, I, you know, yeah. I, I, I get mean, it, but um, yeah, I, I think in this case um, just make sure to, to read the fine print on the sources of, of who's calling for these boycotts. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is kind of like, there are definitely some people I think that are amplifying this that should probably know better, but I think that the vast majority of people are just want to, they want to do something to support the workers of Bessemer, because I think a lot of folks, you know, want, want a union for them. Like, yeah, we, we, we love it for you. Like, this is absolutely unionized. Like we want you to have a good contract and we want you to have, you know, healthcare benefits. We want you to have good union jobs. So 
I think that like, it's kind of figuring out ways to kind of give people ways to do that, that helps that actually supports the people on the ground or, you know, look, giving those people other ways to get involved in labor organizing or, you know, labor work or supporting unions. Um, I think that like the fact that there's a groundswell of support for the Amazon boycott, as much as like the boycott isn't what we should be doing and we shouldn't, you know, amplify this, but the fact that there are so many people that are interested in it is not a bad sign. Right. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, I, I think the, we've reached a place of like, collectively as, as Americans and then, you know, the, the world over, we've kind of reached a place of cognitive dissonance about um, Amazon. Like everyone knows that, uh, that the, the two day prime shipping comes at a cost uh, or sometimes like same day delivery and things like that. It's, you know, there's a human cost uh, for those things. So I think that ultimately more people being aware about what that cost is and, you know, uh, understanding the, the conditions that Amazon imposes on its workers, the better. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, we have to, obviously we have to be strategic about it. Yeah. I mean, that ultimately, I think like just from the campaign perspective is the question of strategy being strategic. I mean, I've worked on pretty big union campaigns and like everything is very, very calculated and planned. And, and the part, part of that isn't just for a lot of that is because union organizing necessarily takes collective buy-in. You got to have a lot of people on board with what you're doing and what you're saying and what your message is, um, because you've got to win a majority, mm -hmm. um, of, of the people that vote. And so, you know, I, I think that the other part of it is that I think that we've got to kind of, I think it's really a, an important kind of like educational discussion to have this much talk about Amazon, what it's like to work there, what the, like, like you said, like what the human toll is of the fact that, you know, that thing showed up on your um, doorstep two days after you ordered it. Um, but then we've also, I mean, especially those of us that are maybe more kind of like engaged with these kinds of questions, think about the strategy of like, okay, we're having this discussion, but how do we have this discussion in a way that actually helps rather than hurts? Mm -hmm. Completely. I think that, you know, I've been in unions now for, and, you know, they're not, uh, I'm not, I've never done like, none of my unions have to do with physical labor. I shouldn't say I've never done physical labor. I've had, I have <laughs> uh, in, 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 uh, in the summers of my youth. Uh, I, but um, I, I think that if you've never been in a union, especially a large kind of more diverse union, um, the thing that struck me the most was when I, I worked for um, a, a top tier university um, and I was in the, the union there and our membership was 
you know, hundreds of hundreds of staff at the university. And the first thing that really struck me at when I went to a union meeting was how like emotional it was. Um, I think people don't understand that. And, you know, the, the union that I was in was majority, at least, at least half um, people of color, many, many women of color. Um, and I think that it, it is so emotional. Like I, the first union meeting that I went to where we were, you know, talking about uh, our next contract negotiation and how this university was like trying to further nickel and dime our, our healthcare and make a, make union members pay more and more out of pocket. Um, you know, the people who spoke were again, women of color, just ex exhausted talking about, you know, supporting their families and, the, the contrast of that, like the really just kind of like begging for crumbs from uh, from these institutions. And the fact that the, you know, this university has a had a $10 billion endowment. Um, it was really striking. And I don't know how you couldn't. I, I don't know how you could leave a meeting like that and not be like, I, I felt like emotionally drained afterwards. I was just like, I because you're just like there's a lot of energy in the room, but there's also just a lot of people's kind of like pain expressed about their material needs in these, hmm. um, in these meetings. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a moment that really sticks with me early on. Um, when I was getting involved in labor, I was, uh, involved in a bargaining meeting where there was a, um, cafeteria worker uh, at a public school that worked cafeteria she was a little bit late for bargaining because she also did a bus run after the day um, and then she had to leave a little bit early because she had a third job um, she was a single mom you know trying to send her uh, daughter to uh, first person in her family to go to college and so she was working three jobs not just to keep a roof over her head but to try to help her daughter out and between all of those things, she still made time to come to a bargaining meeting mm -hmm. and because the union mattered that much. And what the union could secure for her a little bit more security mattered that much. And I think the really powerful thing, like there, there's a lot of emotion in just kind of considering that like all of the competing, like the situation this, you know, this woman is in and the fact that she's still making time for this when even just, I mean, that's incredible. But then also that she can sit down in a bargaining meeting and talk to the boss and basically lecture him on, you know, everything he's getting wrong. And she can do that. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that a cafeteria worker can sit down with a superintendent of a district and basically tell him every different way that he's a dumbass is amazing. And I always tell union members that like, this is the only way that you can actually like talk to the boss as an equal, or if yeah. you want to tell him he's a dumbass. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some of the people like our, our union rep, um, at that, my aforementioned, uh, position was 
you know, I think in her late sixties and she's one of the most metal people I've ever met in my life. Like some of the people that I've met in organized labor are just the coolest, toughest people you'd ever want to meet. Um, and I have nothing but uh, respect and admiration for them. Uh, I, and I don't know how they do it. Talk about being, emo- I can't imagine how emotionally exhausted they are all the time. Um, but yeah, the, the fight goes on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, and this kind of, I think links back to something you were talking about earlier, like the, the interest in unionizing, um, I think that there are, I mean, there, there's the positive reasons for it. The fact that I think that people are, you know, looking for power, you know, I think that they really feel like they need a voice in their workplace and that this is a way to do it. And that a lot of people, I mean, unions are cool again, but also I think it's, it's important to understand, like you mentioned that there's a lot of pain behind that too. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of pain behind folks saying, because especially when you think about what it takes to get people that have been told their entire lives that unions are bad to get to the point where everything sucks so bad at my job that this is the way to like make it better. Like, I think it's in a way, it's like a a really kind of liberating kind of realization to come to, but there's a lot of pain involved in kind Mm -hmm. of getting to that point. So, and I think that, you know, it's, it's the less fun part of I prefer to talk about fucking up the boss and, you know, ways to screw with them, but mm-hmm. because it's fun and it should be fun, but I mean, there is a lot of pain, um, in organizing and, um, and in unions. And I think that really we have to keep an eye on that, that look, we're not just talking about, I mean, management and capital loves to talk about like, labor costs and mm-hmm. like no that's fucking people yeah like, th- those are people yes and i wherever wherever there's a fight for a union there are workers who are being kind of robbed of their dignity and i think that that's uh that's an important thing to remember as well uh in the the rhetoric around this um, just, just to close out, um, I, I've seen you tweeting about this, uh, a little bit, and I know that some of your, uh, some of your comrades in, uh, on, uh, on labor Twitter, uh, have been as well. Um, can you take us through what the pro act is, uh, and why we should know about it? Yeah. Um, so the pro act is, uh, the coolest bill to get introduced in Congress in quite some time, except maybe Medicare for all. It has, um, uh, it has yeah. uh, sunglasses on it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, flicking, no, I mean, it's flicking a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is definitely, um, I mean, that, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not. I mean, yeah. really, I mean, a, a lot of folks may not remember it. And I know that when I was, you know, when this was going through Congress, I wasn't, I mean, I was 18, 19 or so. I thought Obama, I still thought Obama was cool. And, you know, Didn't like I all? think, yeah, a lot of us, I think, uh, had that experience and grew out of it. Um, but, you know, I, I think that like the, the limit of the discussion in 2008, 2009 was um, something called card check. 
without getting into the weeds, basically, uh, it would make union elections a lot easier. It would make it easier to form and get a union. Uh, because right now, what we're seeing in Bessemer is they filed for the election in November. They're just now having the election over the span of like a month starting in February. And between those two things, Amazon like threw the kitchen sink at the workers to try to convince them to not organize. Mm -hmm. And the way Card Check does it is literally just like, do a majority of you want a union? Do you yep. sign a card? Do you give it to the union and they file it? Great, you've got a union. I mean, it's, it takes all the intimidation out of it. So, I mean, that was kind of like the scope of the discussion. That one thing in 2008, 2009, we couldn't even get anywhere close to the finish line mm -hmm. with that. And instead of backing off of demands and we actually threw more shit in, like the PRO Act basically is everything short of repealing Taft-Hartley. Like it repeals almost all of Taft-Hartley's like worst parts. Um, for, those, and, for those of our listeners who don't know what Taft-Hartley is. Yeah, so Taft-Hartley is an awful bill that was passed in, I think, 1947, uh, that basically, it's bullshit. Um, I mean, it, it was a, a way for, everyone looked at the post-war strike wave in 46 and then just like had a collective fit and immediately moved to like, get rid of uh, different tactics like secondary and uh, boycotts and picketing, make it harder to unionize. They introduced the idea of uh, employer free speech. So the first argument that corporations are people. Um, so, I mean, my, just, my favorite argument, I love yeah. corporate personhood. Yeah. So, I mean, like it was all this like insane. And the big part that I think most people are more familiar with is it introduced right to work laws. Right. Those didn't exist before Taft-Hartley. Mm -hmm. And so the PRO Act repeals right to work. So it would immediately end every right to work law in the country, which is awesome. Um, but on top of that, it would make secondary boycotts and pickets legal, which are before like 1947 were some of labor's like biggest weapons. Mm -hmm. um, it would make it easier to form a union. It wouldn't be card check, but what it would do is literally if the, if management so much as looks at you wrong during the election process, you automatically get recognized. Like they can, they have to stay entirely out of it. Ooh like, yeah. So it's, I mean, wow, that is cool. And it ends like one of the big problems in uh, workplaces now is misclassification for uh, independent contractors. And this would end that basically and say, yes, you can be part of the bargaining unit. So it makes it so much harder for employers to kind of like chip away at who's part of the union and who's not. It really just kind of takes a baseball bat to a lot of things that management can do right now. Um, one of the big things is in uh, Bessemer, they basically pulled them into these classrooms and gave them little classes on, you know, why unions are bad. Things like that would become illegal. You can't do that anymore. Hell yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, and, and in Bessemer, they've been having almost daily yeah. um, info sessions, quote unquote, yeah. about why unions are bad uh, yeah. at the, the behest of Amazon. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, um, the thing, the thing about this that I always come back to is like, I know that Amazon perpetually doesn't care about optics, mm -hmm. but how with, with every kind of roadblock that they keep putting in the way of unionization, how do they not realize how not only that that's making them look to the 
outside world, but also how, like, if I were an employee of Amazon in that warehouse and I were even on the fence, I would, wouldn't you be like, wow, if the company is going to such great lengths to make sure this doesn't happen, there has to be something off there. Right. Yeah. I mean, Amazon's not doing it because they care about you. I mean, right. like, yeah. I mean, I, and I think that like, usually I, I'm betting, I can't, I can't say for sure, but I'm betting that's what RWDSU is like telling workers and what worker leaders are telling their coworkers is there's got to be something to this if they're so scared of it. Yeah. The, um, uh, the employer that times your bathroom breaks maybe doesn't have your best interest at heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and the funny thing is that like Amazon is like, it's interesting because if you look at some of the other union campaigns recently in the South, I'm thinking of the uh, UAW campaign at uh, Volkswagen in Chattanooga, there were two different elections, like uh, Volkswagen, like the governor of Tennessee came in and, you know, addressed all the workers and told them how unions are bad. And, you know, it was just constant pressure from politicians and church leaders and everything. And the funny thing is like Amazon's walking this weird line of like doing this absolutely insane, awful shit. But then like, they're not calling in the governor of Alabama. Mm -hmm. Like they've got to walk this really, and I think it's a very different environment that they're operating in now versus even a couple of years ago where they really can't be seen to be doing like a lot of things that would help them bust the union. Mm -hmm. Like they've got to keep it as localized as they can. But I mean, especially right now, palling around with, you know, Republican lawmakers in Alabama um, sends a certain message nationally, I think, yes. that they don't want to send. Totally. So, you know, I would love to end um, on, on a slightly optimistic note. Uh, so I am fishing when I, when I ask this question, do you, you know, obviously the Trump administration was, the Department of Labor under Trump was just stacked with right to work folks. Mm -hmm. um, do you, are, are you hopeful about the Biden administration's uh, Department of Labor? And if not that, and that's fine if you're not, are you hopeful about where the labor movement is going? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the important things to keep in mind with the Biden administration is that if he's the most pro-labor president um, ever, it's not because Joe Biden's a cool and nice guy. It's because we've he's organized not. to the point. Yeah, he's we've not. organized. <laughs> yeah, we've organized to the point where he has to be. He has to be. Yeah. Um, and, and I will say that you know, it's probably reasonable to say that he he at least thinks of himself as a union guy and might I be more sympathetic. Yeah, he might be more sympathetic to our arguments, but he's also not going to stick his neck out for us. And the fact no. that he feels like he needs to do things like issue a presidential statement, you know, saying that union busting is bad. Like the, th the fact that he feels like he needs to do those things mm -hmm. is a measure, I think, of the kind of power that labor is starting to actually exercise right now. Um, and so I, I actually am fairly optimistic about the NLRB or the Department of Labor, partially because I think that, I mean, the signs are that Biden is doing good things there, 
but also I think it's because we're getting good outcomes because organized labor is not only, I think, stronger than it has been in a long time, but it's more willing to use that power than it has been in a long time. Because, I mean, everything seems to indicate they're telling Biden, look, you're going to do this. And they're really not, uh, they're not accepting any equivocation or, you know, mealy mouth bullshit. (laughs) I think that what we ultimately need uh, in this country, especially, and maybe in any in any country like us, uh, is not only a, a robust uh, labor movement, but also um, that going hand in hand with the enforcement of antitrust legislation, mm-hmm. uh, especially something you know, a corporation like like Amazon and all the tech giants, um, and that is actually an area where I have been shockingly uh, pleased with uh, the Biden administration's appointments. Mm. Um, just today it was announced that uh, Lena Khan uh, is going to be heading to the, the Federal Trade Commission and she is a kind of a nationally renowned uh, antitrust scholar. Um, yeah. And I think Tim, Tim Wu, I wanna say his name is, uh, is, is another one. Um, Tim Wu will be will be headed to the to the White House. Um, again, I, I think we are at an apex of uh, in in modern America, anyways, of uh, both. I guess of the the conditions being ripe for major labor legislation to be passed, pro-labor legislation, and um, finally some enforcement of our antitrust laws. Because it's not that the antitrust laws don't exist, is that they do, we just don't Mm. enforce them. Yeah, you know, I think that, I think that going hand in hand with revitalization of labor I mean, that's, that's exactly, I, I agree entirely. Like we're going to see other things that go along with more powerful workers, like other demands come from that. Um, right. And I, I think that that's really exciting in a way that we haven't had a whole lot to be excited about in I know. a long time. <laughs> <laughs> we are, uh, you know, we're ready. We're, we're constantly ready for disappointment. And I think that I mean, I think that I, I, I'm very often, I think like the voice of optimism uh, on our show, sometimes naively so, but I will say that every day I feel like there is increasing news that the left is winning. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that we, we have a lot to be, to be hopeful for and excited about, and it should excite us to continue uh, working towards uh, achieving our goals and uh, destroying corporate personhood. (laughs) God willing. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully one day um, the prop 22s of the world will, will be a thing of the past. Um, but um, where can our listeners find you? Um, first off, I would tell them 
I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Don't yeah, my, my tweets. Uh, it's I apologize in advance. Um, you can find me on Twitter at um, at the House Red T H E H O U S E R E D. And um, yeah, I mean that's that's unfortunately where I live on the internet. So um, I mean, it's I to you, yeah. say no more on this show. This yeah. is a, a, we we live and breathe online. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, the, the, the apology comes standard. We acknowledge mm. that it's terrible that yeah. we, we live our lives this way. Um, and, uh, and I assume, uh, I assume, uh, they can also find, find your work on, on strike wave. Is there, is there yeah. anything else within that that you want to plug? Um, yeah, um, I think that, uh, strike wave is great. You should, uh, you should definitely go visit it. Uh, it's the strike wave, um, at no, not, what is it? I've completely forgotten. Uh, it's the strikewave.com uh, and you can follow strike wave on Twitter at, um, at strike wave. So I, those are better tweets because I don't do them. So they're much better. We love bad tweets here on Reply Guys. And um, <laughs> Connor, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really um, fruitful and enlightening and energizing conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, solidarity. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. Walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.